Thank you for listening to the Prairie Oaks Pulpit Podcast. This is a recording of our Sunday morning sermons. I hope it is a blessing to you and contributes to your spiritual growth. Thank you for listening. Thank you for uh, supporting this ministry. God bless. Now let's get to the sermon. We're continuing our study through Romans, but we're not in Romans. So we're going to be in the book of James. In fact, I don't know if he's got it up there yet or not, but it's James chapter 2 is where we're going to be looking. But I need to set it up just a little bit because two things. One, last week we were in Paul's letter to the Romans, and in chapter 4 we expanded on Paul's premise that we're all sinners, no one's perfect, and we need saved. And the only way to be rescued isn't by trying to do enough good works to get God's favor, but that Jesus has already done all the good works and that by trusting in him, only trust him, by trusting in him, we receive his righteousness, his good works. And we receive it by faith, not by any works that we have done, not by any merit I could earn because I can't. And so... He used in chapter 4, his prime example was Abraham, right? That Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. And that was was his his big point throughout chapter 4. That's kind of why they broke it up, that one into its chapter of its own, is because he talked so much about Abraham there. It wasn't when he was circumcised, it was before he was circumcised. So he could be the father of both Jews and Gentiles who trust in God to forgive them of their sins. Um, You know, it was not by keeping the law. Well, he was before there was the law. It was because of faith. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Which then, you astute readers, you start reading through the rest of the New Testament and you come to James and James says some things that seem contrary to what Paul just told us in Romans chapter 4. And so, well, why is that? I mean, it probably has something to do with you've got two different apostles dealing with two different problems. You've got, and, and just to give you a little background, so who is James? Well, James... This is not the the one that was uh, in the 12, either one of them. Um, This is the one we understand is the half-brother of Jesus. He, uh, so neither neither Paul nor James were one of the 12. Neither of them confessed Christ before having a resurrection encounter with Jesus, with an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. And neither of them lived to an old age. They both died in persecution against, for their faith in Christ. Now, the Apostle Paul, you know, he was very zealous for the law. And then when he met the resurrected Lord, he became, rather than persecuting the church, he became a founder of churches. He planted churches throughout the Mediterranean world, right? He never stayed in a place more than we can tell three years. And that was a long time for him. Usually it was a matter of months. Um, And his biggest problem, it seems, was he was constantly having to defend himself and the gospel from false teachers. Now, James, I call him apostle because, well, that's what Paul calls him, so I can get away with it. Um, He also taught 
as he was zealously taught obedience to God. We see that in Acts. We see that in his letter, right? Um, and we're read in Acts that he didn't trust in his half-brother as his Lord until after he met the resurrected Jesus. But it turned him around. And when the apostles left Jerusalem, James was the one who stayed and pastored the church. And as we can tell, he never left Jerusalem. He stayed right there and pastored that church until he died at the hands of persecutors. And his biggest problem wasn't dealing with false teachers as much as it was dealing with false professions of faith. And as you read through James's book, you catch on to that pretty quick. And that's, I set that up because, you know, while Paul is dealing with legalism, that idea that you want to earn God's favor by keeping all these rules, James is dealing with this easy believism where there are no rules. You just do whatever you want. Jesus paid it all, right? But those are two ditches, and Peter, Paul and James are both trying to steer their readers away from the ditches and to keep it on the straight and narrow way that Jesus talked about, right? Paul, we aren't obedient enough for God. We need Jesus. James, you aren't saved unless you're obeying God. So that's the two things here. Now let's see how it fleshes itself out in James chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 14 through 26. And if you would, out of respect for God's word, would you stand with me? James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what is a profit? Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God? You do well. Even the demons believe and they tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out the other way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Let's pause for prayer. Father, we thank you for this time together. I thank you for each one that's come to gather to worship and to hear your word and to sing praises and to pray. And I pray, Lord, that your word would, would stir in our hearts, both here and in the children's chapel, Lord, that we pray for your spirit to reveal the spiritual need of the day. Lord, that the lost would be saved, those that have not trusted in Christ, that they would do so. Those that have strayed away would come back, come back as the prodigal son to recognize your grace and your mercy and your righteousness. We pray, Lord, that you would start revival in our midst, O Lord. We need you. We are desperate without you. 
Forgive us of the many ways that I fail you. And in the name of Jesus Christ, the true king and the hero of the story, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Okay. So, James, obviously, if you've read James very much, you know that he's not one to beat around the bush. He gets right at it, doesn't he? What is a prophet, brothers and sisters, if someone says they have faith but do not have works? And I think one of the keys in that is that it's, he's getting at saying. It's easy to say something, isn't it? It's real easy for the words to, you know, to claim whatever. He wants to see some evidence. And I wonder, where do you think James got this idea that words are not enough? Well, he probably got it from a very credible source, like his cousin, John the Baptist, Bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. You say you've repented. You say you want to be a part of this. Well, then show me. Where's the evidence? And you can see then how uh, that expanded. Well, people would come to John and say, well, what do I do then? What does that look like in my life? And he would give them specific things that this is what that would look like in your life. Roman soldiers, quit shaking people down for money. You know, tax collectors, collect only what is, is allowed uh, by law and don't cheat people. You know, just simple things. Be generous to those in need. Well, we find that it hits even closer to home because when Jesus then began to preach and to teach, what did he say? Well, you can look in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 that Jesus plainly said. In fact, I'm going to read it to you because it's, it's good stuff. As he wraps up his Sermon on the Mount, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Amen. Doing, not just saying, but doing. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And I'm going to be honest with you. I've not done any of those things. I'm not, there's no, no miracles accompanying my life. And Jesus says to them, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It wasn't the big showy stuff that Jesus was looking for. It was a changed heart. Amen. It was a changed heart that is reflected in a life that's different. So we see here, James is not fallen far from the apple tree. He's his own master and half-brother. Can you imagine growing up as the little brother of Jesus? He saw it. He knew what kind of life Jesus lived. Even if he didn't want to follow his older brother as a disciple... He couldn't deny what he saw. That, and so when he saw the resurrected Lord, he followed him. But we see here, James is teaching the same way Jesus did. He wants to see evidence. It's not enough to say that God exists. He wants to see life. So let's go back to James's letter there, James chapter 2. And so we see here, he uses that 
example of a brother or sister is naked, destitute of daily food. You say the words, but you didn't put any actions to it. Well, did the words do any good? No. Words are empty without there being action. Without there being action. So faith by itself, that profession, it does not have works. It's dead. It's empty. It's void. Now, he, he's a good teacher here. James says, but some of you will say, you know, I have faith. I have works. Or you have faith. I have works. You know, he says, well, show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. And I think that's a key there. It goes back to that whole, it's easy to say it. But where's the evidence? Is there, you know, I remember as a kid, some, some preacher used this illustration that if it became against the law to be a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict? Would there be enough evidence to convict? And so what does our life look like outside these walls? Would there be enough evidence? James says, show me your faith Without your works? No, I will show you my faith by my works. And then he talks about what he sees around him here. So, you believe there's one God? You're a good monotheist? Well, so? The demons know that, and they tremble. You remember in the the Gospels, they would come across Jesus and they would cry out in fear. Have you come to torment us before the the time? What are you doing here, Son of God? They knew who He was. They knew and feared. And I think that He gives us a a reminder here. It's not enough to say that God exists. That's just acknowledging facts. That's not... Well, I guess in this time, it is kind of hard to get people to acknowledge facts. But it is not enough just to acknowledge the fact that God exists. And also, you notice, it's not enough to have an emotional response. The demons tremble. They had a very emotional feeling experience when they were in the presence of Him. That's not enough either. As Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. There's going to have to be a change. So you want to know, oh foolish man, that faith without works is dead. And so now he brings up Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? And And I pause there because, you know, that's where we get to the sticking point. All those good good kids that went through Romans, they get to this and they're like, what do I do with this? It's the same word. It's the same terminology. What is going on here? In fact, denominations split apart over things like this. So what's going on? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? So let's keep reading and figure out what's going on here. And we see in verse 22, he's going to answer himself. Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works, faith was made perfect. Now, there's some things in this that you read it, but it kind of helps me to to put the pieces together a little differently. So you see that faith was a co-worker. That's what that word, it's one word. Working together is one word in the Greek. And that's basically what it's talking about. It's being a co-worker. 
So faith and works are working together. They are cooperating towards the same goal. And what is that? And by works, faith was made perfect, made complete, made it, it accomplished its purpose. Well, what is that purpose? You know, we have some hints of that earlier, but let's look at this for a minute. Faith and works are working to accomplish the goal of bringing maturity that pleases God. And what is that? Well, let's keep reading. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. That goal of of maturity that pleases God. It fulfilled, and that's, that's interesting to me. It fulfilled the scriptures. Now you're familiar with the, the expression fulfilled scriptures when we say that about Jesus, right? You know, that Jesus, by no power of himself, uh, was born of the virgin. It fulfilled the scripture in Isaiah, as we read a few months back when we were on a Wednesday night, fulfilled scripture that he would be, the Messiah would be born of a virgin. He couldn't control that of himself. God took care of that. But here, James is using that to say, this scripture was fulfilled, meaning we know that it was accomplished. It was, it was proven, verified, that Abraham had faith and that he was declared righteous. Because here's the thing. When I was born again, I didn't change colors. I didn't grow a new appendage. I didn't get a brand new birthday. I didn't get anything like that. So in a lot of ways, my salvation was invisible. What was going to be the evidence? Well, the evidence for me and for others was if my life changed. For Abraham, that day when he was wrestling with, uh, not physically wrestling like his grandson would, but wrestling with God that day. God, I'm, I'm, I'm lonely in that I don't have any kids. I, you promised me a nation and I don't have anything. How are you going to fulfill this? And God makes promises to him that he'd repeated, that he was basically repeating, but he'd said him before. And Abraham believed God. And God saw in the heart and credited him righteousness. And they had that conversation, but there was no evidence until Abraham started living differently. It made a, he started living as though he believed that. Now, obviously, Abraham didn't do a flawless job of that. That's why Genesis makes such a mess along the way. But it, let's be honest, I don't do it flawlessly either. And I think it's probably safe to say you don't. We're all a work in progress. Until the day he calls us home. But God is relentlessly working 
to fulfill those promises in our life, to justify, to vindicate that claim that you are his and that you've been saved. And you see that in Abraham's life in that. So Genesis 15, chronologically speaking, is a lot earlier than Genesis 22. The promise is finally fulfilled. He's got a son. He becomes an adult, most likely at least a teenager. And God says, okay, I want you to go sacrifice him. And Abraham says, okay, I'll do what you told me. Because I know, God, you made these promises and you have to fulfill your promises. You're a God of your word. And so even if you have to raise him from the dead, I know you will because there's no other choice. It's kind of crazy to think, isn't it? But he did it. And of course, he didn't actually kill his son. God provided a lamb. God provided himself a sacrifice. But Abraham's faith claim was vindicated that day. Hallelujah. Amen. And he's trying to do the same things in us. And a lot of times, are we cooperating with him? Are we willing to obey? Are we willing to let the works flow out of us as we lean into that? It's hard, isn't it? It's hard, but he's trying to mature that faith. And it also fulfilled the end of that verse 23 in that, and Abraham was called the friend of God. Because here's the funny thing. Jesus, God, they want a relationship. It's not about the trappings of a religion. It's about a relationship where we walk with him and talk with him all along the way. Sometimes passionate prayers of, of pleading for help or interceding for others, or it's just, thank God it worked out today better than it should have, you know, whatever it is, but he wants us to interact with him. And in that, you know, he's giving us instructions and he wants us to, to obey those because that is proof that we know who he is and that he does know what is best for us. But that goes back to what Jesus said when he said, depart from me, for I never knew you because you never knew him. There was no relationship. There was no friendship. He knows those who are his. There's an, and that word know in, in the Bible, if you've read for very long, you realize there's some very intimate things Concealed behind the word no. Because he wants us to be intimate with him, not a, just an occasional conversation or just calling up when we need help. It is an intimacy that he is seeking. And so, that backing this up, we see where Paul and Abraham. Or Paul and James are talking about the same thing when they talk about Abraham. He had faith. Way back there, God knew the heart in Genesis 15 and credited him righteousness. But he wasn't satisfied with that shallow amount of faith and just a shallow relationship. He wanted more. Because he deserves more. And he coaxed that further so that it would be fulfilled and he would be vindicated saying he was a, a man of God, a friend of God. 
And so James says, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only, not by just spoken faith. He wants more. And then James isn't done meddling. And I like that James is not done meddling because he uses one more example, doesn't he? In a letter written to probably other Jewish believers, to others that uh, may not have been believers, but they were at least hanging out with the believers. Um, And he uses an example of someone who is not a Jew. He uses an example of someone who is not of sterling character. And he uses someone that we don't have the whole life span to get the story on. We have about a month. Really, it all started with just one day. And that's Rahab, the harlot. And if you don't know what a harlot is, ask your dad. It'll, he'll explain it and turn red when he does. Um, but here you have Rahab. She was of Jericho. They were the enemies of God. They were... She was a harlot. But one day, while they were trembling in fear, they had the emotional response to the facts. The God of Israel was on his way with his people, and he was coming to take the promised land back for himself because it was his land in the first place. And so they all knew the facts of who the God of Israel was, and they all were trembling. Remind you of the demons? But she did something else. And we're told in the New Testament three times she believed. What made the difference? When the messengers, as James calls them, others call them spies, when the scouts came and she said, you guys know the true God. When you guys come, I don't want to die. I want to follow that God. I'm covenanting myself with him. I'll save your life if you'll save my life and all my family. And she believed. And as James says, she acted on it. She acted on it. Didn't have a whole lifetime like Abraham did. She had just that moment. But she knew this was her chance. And about a month later, when the Israelites showed up, God put a hedge of protection around her and her house. Everyone she could convince to be in her house that day was rescued. Because she believed that God shows mercy to sinners. A faith that works. I love that that's James's other example. Because it reminds us, we may not have the sterling reputation of an Abraham. We may have made some train wrecks along the way, but that's not, that's not the point. God says, I want you to meet me where I'm at right now and where you're at right now. We don't always sing that old invitation song, but just as I am, that's all he wants. He'll take care of the rest. Because James is reminding us here, God just wants us to take him at his word. 
that he receives sinners. He'll provide the good works in Jesus. And so when the judgment comes, he sees Jesus instead of us. Because God's standard is perfection. And if we can't do it, it was very merciful of him to let someone else stand in our, in our place for that. And so you see also where the two apostles dealing with two problems. James's problem is easy believism. If I just left it there, that oh, just say the magic words and you'll be good to go, then I've told you the wrong thing. I've led you to the ditch. Because he also, I come just as I am, but he doesn't leave us as we are. Amen. He wants to have an intimate relationship with us. And how can two walk together if they're not in agreement? A faith that is alone is not faith at all. Many want to claim the perk of heaven by faith, but where's the evidence? And so God is relentlessly working. Maybe it is for some of us to be saved. Maybe it's for some of us to surrender again. Oh, Lord, you know what I'm holding between me and you. And it's keeping me from having that friendship with you. Or maybe there's someone you want to pray for, but we're going to have a song of invitation. Ms. Holly and Matt are coming up and it's just a designated opportunity to listen to what the Holy Spirit is prompting from what we've looked at in James today. And to just say, yes, Lord, whatever you say.